Welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions theology and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Kochman, Director of Mobilization and Advancement for ABWE International, joined by Scott Dunford, lead church planter at Redeemer Church in the Silicon Valley in California. And we are excited to be talking about a topic today that is increasingly uh, not only important, but even becoming a, a little bit controversial, but it's important to go deep into the roots of not not just a, a lot of the, the conversation that's happening online and in articles and in books, but to the biblical theology that lies behind it. And that's why we do this show. Scott, we want to talk about what missionaries need to know about the Imago Day and about culture and how those things relate mm-hmm. to each other. We talk about culture, 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 right? Cultural engagement is sort of this ubiquitous thing that it, it's almost lost all of its meaning. Everybody wants to engage the culture and especially missionaries want to learn culture, right. but we need to get down at the roots of what does that mean? And uh, what does the Imago Day have to do with it? And to talk about that, we're going to bring on somebody that you've been particularly impacted by. Uh, Dr. Kenneth Narbas was a pastor before he and his wife, Mendy, joined Wycliffe Bible Translators about 19 years ago. And in 2002, they moved to the island of Tana to translate the New Testament with a team of nationals. In 2012, they moved back to the U.S. And Dr. Narbas is professor of international studies at uh, Belhaven University. Excuse me, he was. In 2014, he moved to Biola to teach and direct the MA and PhD programs in intercultural studies. And he continues to volunteer as a translation and anthropology consultant with SIL and the Seed Company, and his research focuses on contextual theology and missiological anthropology. So nerds, eat your hearts out. This episode is for you. <laughs> Scott, tell us about the book that uh, Dr. Nerbas wrote too. Yeah, I'm really thankful for this book, God's Image and Global Cultures, Integrating Faith and Culture. Uh, and it was it was brought to me when I was asked to write a book review um, by um, Training Leaders International for their uh, Journal of Global Christianity. And I dove into the book and just really appreciated some of the thoughts because missionaries struggle with this idea of culture. Um, one, we, we come in with a cultural perspective that we inherit. We have a way that we think church ought to be done. We have a way that we think, you know, the, the street ought to be crossed. We have a way that we think, you know, clothes should be worn. We, we come in with these preconceptions and then we engage another culture that doesn't have the gospel. And then as they come to accept Jesus Christ, what, what should that look like? And I think missionaries, as long as there've been missionaries have struggled with this idea. And so I don't want to get too much into what the book was about. I really, since we have the author right here, we can really kind of dive into this topic together. Um, but Ken, it is great to have you on our show. Thanks for being willing to join us. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and then we're going to uh, dive into why you wrote this book. So can tell what can you tell us about yourself besides what your bio would say? Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me. And uh, I appreciate a podcast that um, is aimed at uh, uh, deeper theological issues with a, with an audience that's already engaged in cross-cultural work. Um, well, what I discovered at an early age, maybe at uh, maybe 10 or 11 years old, was that I have a love for languages. And it turns out that was the only subject I was really good in in school. Um, <laughs> and uh, I remember the very first time I went out of the U.S., uh, maybe at around 11 or 12 years old, I went to Mexico. And for some reason, it felt like I was going home, even though I'd never been there. And that's when I began to realize that I had a calling to work cross-culturally um, and that I would enjoy it. 
Uh, and my wife actually was uh, called into missions work as well in Mexico when we were both teenagers. So you, you, you went to Mexico, you got called into missions, and, um, and yet that isn't just where it stayed. You didn't end up going to Mexico, right? You ended up going to Vanuatu. That's right. We did do a lot of work in Mexico. And, um, uh, but actually, Wycliffe Bible Translators told us that we could uh, do our Bible translation work in Mexico. They said there are still 150 languages in Mexico alone that need a, uh, a Bible translation. Wow. But they said, since there's so much bilingualism, we should consider going somewhere where uh, the languages are uh, you know, still thriving, the minority languages, where they're not giving in to a, a, a wider mm-hmm. language, a language of wider communication. And so they suggested to us Vanuatu, and we'd never been to the South Pacific. Uh, so we, we said yes without ever having, having oh, wow. ever gone that direction. So your book, God's Image and Global Cultures, we were talking before we started recording here. It's not a missions book necessarily. Why did you write the book? You know, I was teaching intercultural studies uh, semester after semester, and I would basically repeat the same philosophies and approaches toward culture that I had learned from my professors who were repeating what they had learned from their professors. And a lot of that was imported from uh, a secular, even a Darwinist worldview. And, and just one example was uh, we would teach, and I, I would teach because I had learned this as well, that culture was just an answer to basic questions in life. And so why do the Japanese do uh, you know, weddings this way or social organization this way and why Chinese this way and South Asians this way and South Americans this way? And what we would always teach was kind of just the, the common accepted view uh, in academia was, well, it was just different cultures or different societies coming up with their idiosyncratic answer to the same questions about life. What is real? How will I find a spouse? Uh, how will I make sure that I'm, you know, free from illness? And so one culture kind of uh, invents more or less shamanism and another invents another answer to it. And, you know, um, and so all of the kinship systems and all of the religions are just, um, uh, answers that people have come up with over the years to basic life's questions. And what I realized was that's actually a very, very low view of culture. Um, it, uh, the positive side of it is, is it encourages a bit of, um, it reduces ethnocentrism so that we can say, Oh, okay, they do it that way because they're answering the same questions I am. And, and so their cultural, um, system makes sense to them. It, it exists for a reason, but, what it didn't do is um, it didn't recognize that actually God made us um, to have all of these facets of culture because they're part of bearing his image. And that's a much higher view of culture than just that, yeah. you know, each of us has come up with our own answers over time. Um, that uh, the reason that we have these different art systems, different music systems, different religious systems is because God created us to be very creative and that we can't not have all of these, uh, these different various cultures. He made us to be very creative and diverse. And, uh, and so the, the various cultures exist because it reflects how creative and how cultural God is. Yeah. I like what you're, what you, how you brought that out. And I think a a normal human or Christian logic would say, Hey, we, we see Adam and Eve created in the garden of Eden. Um, they were created good and perfect and holy. Um, and they had culture, which you don't argue that they don't, you actually, actually argue that they 
we're great at culture making and that's what we were created to do. So I think there's an impulse that says, Hey, if Adam and Eve were the original, they were, they were without sin in the beginning. Can we get back to that cultural archetype? And your answer to that is what? No. Right. Um, I I think you pretty make, make that pretty much clear in the book (laughs) that we we're not supposed to go back to that archetype of, of Adam and Eve's culture. Um, so what, what, what are we supposed to do as, as humans? Yeah, that was a, a very significant paradigm shift for me. Um, growing up in more or less the Baptist tradition, um, what I understood Christianity had the answers for was basically how to get saved, how to get, my, how to have my sins forgiven, and how to find my way to the Father. But when I went to a uh, Calvinist leaning uh, um, university to teach there, I discovered that. The long tradition within Calvinism is that God is himself a worker um, and that there's work in heaven and that when he put Adam and Eve in the garden, his plan was for them to work before the, it wasn't part of the curse. So often we think of that the work was, was the curse, but it was actually the sweat and the thorns that was the curse. But actually the work, the creativity, go do something with this was his plan all along. And so God envisioned us. Uh, when he says subdue the earth, you know, fill the earth and subdue it, that he envisioned us splitting the atom and, uh, you know, finding a way to Mars eventually and uh, harnessing solar power. And, uh, you know, that so to not do that, to not enjoy creation for all its fullness is actually to not fully experience what God meant when he said, be fruitful and multiply and when he blessed them. Um, And so that gave me a much fuller view of uh, God's plan for us than just that we repent of our sins and and have eternal life in heaven. So talk to me a little bit about why the Imago Dei is important to understanding culture, because culture can be defined so many different ways. You know, you can go back to Eden, um, but I, I think there's also some you know important definitions of culture. Culture is religion externalized. It's the outgrowth of the cultists, right? So if you have a different uh, religious worldview, you're going to have a different externalization of that. And if you have different sets of values, it's going to lead to externalization in different ways. Um, But it it seems that you would almost put culture slightly deeper than that, um, all the way at the the, the root level of the image of God. Um, So how do you define that? Um, What's the the image of God have to do with culture making? Yeah, uh Originally, as a missiologist and professor of intercultural studies, I would uh, repeat what I had learned from Charles Kraft and other missiologists that God is supracultural. In other words, that, you know, God kind of has to work through our culture because we're these finite beings. We're these embodied beings who, you know, we have kinship and we have food systems. And so he, in a way, kind of reduces himself to uh, our cultural level and, and we'll work through our culture, but that God was somehow super cultural. But the more that I studied the Imago Dei um, and became familiar with, um, as, as I mentioned, a Calvinist concept of culture, the more I realized that it's not that God is super cultural, but that the basic actions that we call culture, communicating, creating, um, you know, being in a, um, a loving relationship, that these are all rooted in the Trinity. And so God is eternally doing the types of things that we call culture, communicating, speaking, making stuff, um, and work, you know, in the sense of that, that was the creation wasn't just an afterthought for him. It was him, him embodying the, 
the very nature of his own of being creative of of making stuff um so i i li- i list four basic actions that bearing the nature of god uh relate to culture creating communicating loving and ruling he created us to rule in the sense of um just like he's the the lord of creation he's um to bear his image is to rule over creation as well and to make something of it to you know to take it and subdue it and enjoy it no, I, I love that. I love that that uh, the way you kind of bring that out is is just culture making is a part of who we are. So you you've been in the mission world for a long time, both training missionaries, mission leaders now at Biola, but also been in the on the ground in some really nitty gritty. Uh, you know, no one no one would argue against your missions bona fides uh, for sure. So, but as you you've experienced and you've seen with your own eyes. This idea of culture and how the gospel changes culture and how missionaries influence cultures um, is a tricky concept and, and struggle for missionaries. Um, so, so what makes this? Why do you think this is? Why do you think that culture uh, and culture change and culture creation is such a tricky subject for missionaries? Well, I think that the first thing must be that uh, most of us don't think deeply about um how culture relates to basically the, the Christian message of repent of your sins, uh, you know, be baptized and, and obey God. We don't, we don't realize that that is somehow connected to governmental systems and political systems and, you know, economics and kinship. And so uh, by not having a robust understanding of, um, of how the gospel is connected to every other sphere of life, uh, so that's the the, way, the first way to capture when Jesus said, make disciples, uh, teach them to obey all that I've commanded, that the all I've commanded, if you go through scripture, you realize that this has an economic impact. It has a political impact, a social impact, yeah. um, you know, down to um, even the use of our arts and our dance and, you know, our, our clothing and everything. Um, yeah. But so often we just reduce the gospel instead to uh one teeny one teeny part of culture which would be uh religious belief are there any examples that you could give us of maybe even your time in mexico or in vanuatu where um you know you came in into contact with a cultural you know phenomenon of that culture that on its face uh was maybe a little bit of a struggle for you but as time you you learned to see the beauty of it and the deeper meanings behind it where is Vanuatu exactly? <laughs> Alex doesn't watch Survivor much. Right. Well, in fact, Survivor was on our island. Uh, really? In, oh, that's cool. In 2004. Um, it's 1,500 miles north of New Zealand or 1,500 miles uh, east of Brisbane, Australia. Um, well, an example of something uh, that might be a bit hard for Christians from outside of, uh, of Melanesia to understand would be uh, for instance, everybody in um, on our island was expected to marry their first cousin, and the Christians on the island would point out that actually marrying your your cross cousin um, is not technically forbidden in Scripture. And there are examples of people marrying their cross cousins in Scripture, um, uh, even of the patriarchs. And um, in one sense, you can see where okay, uh, you always have this built in network. Um, a safety net, 
you know who your obligations are are toward. You always have this wider network of people that feel responsible responsibility for their grandkids. But you know, and then just to push it a little further, um, what we would call child swapping was very common. So if a if a man and wife on on Tana have um, three girls and no boy, and then he has a brother who has uh, three boys and no girl. They might just switch. Uh, you know, you give me one of your girls, wow. and I give you one of my boys. And Christians from outside Melanesia might uh, say, "Well, that's not biblical," or you know, "That's not right." You have a responsibility to your nuclear family only. But that's kind of hard to find in scripture. You know, to <laughs> to, to build a scriptural argument that um, that somehow it's sinful for. Uh, um, for two brothers to decide to raise each other's kids or something. And, and, you know, the whole system there, well, they grew up knowing who their biological mother is. They see her all the time. They walk from one hut to the other. And, and so there's, it's more of a community raising the kids anyway. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. The longer you're there, the more you realize how um, uh, interconnected everybody's life is more collectivist. And you get, I think missionaries typically, especially in a village setting, get more and more used to a collectivist culture, uh, but it's pretty hard to root out the individualism from us. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're hitting at some important things here too, because I think your book does a good job at getting at the, the goodness of the diversity of human cultures and, and how that creativity has its roots in the way that God hardwired us. Um, But then you do get out onto the field and you find some things that are not only different, you know, from one culture to another, but sometimes wrong. There are, there are, you know, cannibalistic tribes, right? There are headhunters. I mean, there are, and, and those are the most extreme examples but there are times when, you know, when one culture has some things right and another has some wrong. And, and that's an important thing, right? Because, you know, multiculturalism is very popular, but at the same time, we as Christians approach uh, other cultures and our own culture with a degree of skepticism where we're holding everything up against the law of God. So how do you uh, wrestle through that topic in the book that not all cultures are, are exactly the same? They're not all equal. Yeah, that that is a tough one. The, um, I problematize it a, a number of ways. One of them is, well, is there is somehow the um, let's say the is the biblical culture normative for all people? But I show the difficulty in that. In that, do you mean the biblical culture of the patriarchs or of Israel when it was in power, or Israel when it was in exile, or the New Testament uh, church? Um, at its birth, you know, uh, and so which biblical culture are you talking about? Um, and then somehow is, are, are we saying that somehow Hebrew is somehow closer to, uh, you know, God's plan for language or that somehow the, the, um, um, the Jewish social organization or the Jewish political organization of, uh, you know, the Israelite political organization was somehow more normative. And for the most part, I would say, you know, that's not realistic, uh, that for all times and places, we would somehow try and mimic this imagined and it wouldn't be a real, it would just be an imagined Old Testament culture that we can uh, recreate. And so instead, we're left with biblical principles, you know, um, instead of copying um, particular political or social organization or economics, it, it just, uh, we, we can never reduplicate the economic system of the Israelites as nomads or the Israelites as, a, as, ag- as agrarians even. Um, so uh, instead, we have biblical principles to live by. Right. That's a basic hermeneutical principle. You're taking, you know, you're, you're not saying that we need to 
we do this with God's law, right? We're not building parapets around our roofs, but we're taking, um, you know, the general equity of God's law and saying, well, let's apply this as best we can. Let's, you know, exercise caution. Let's uh, think about, um, you know, lines of responsibility and, and things like that. That's something that we always do when we interpret scripture. Yeah. And one of the reasons I also wanted to write this book was, um, when I get into a theology of diversity and, and uh, God's plan for cultural differences, uh, I go through the typical vocabulary that you find in intercultural studies of collectivism and individualism and hierarchy and egalitarianism and direct and indirect communication and, and such. I, I give about 17 um, uh, dyadic categories that that we see cultures are kind of on a, on a continuum for. And what typically happens is, is Christian professors who are teaching these to, um, you know, in the classroom will say, well, you know, um, wherever you are on the continuum is okay. And that it's not right or wrong. It's just different. And so the point in teaching those, uh, cultural variables is often just to teach a bit of cultural pluralism, not relativism. It's not philosophical relativism. It's just to understand that cultures are different and to be okay with that. And so typically, I think professors, Christian professors stop short. Yeah. And all they do is say, okay, wherever you on the map on any of these variables is okay. There's no, there's no right or wrong place to be when it comes to, um, uh, hospitality or collectivism or hierarchy or anything. But I figured that's letting our, that's, um, yeah, it's yeah. stopping short or it's letting us yeah. off the hook too easily. We should actually spend more yeah. time and look at scripture and say, yeah, you know what? When I look at scripture, there's not a lot that suggests that we should be extremely task oriented rather than relational oriented and extremely planned in our hospitality. You would have a hard time building a case that the typical approach toward hospitality in the U.S. Um, is biblical, you know, where you can't stay at my house. You have to give me a lot of warning. You need to rent your own car. You need to stay in a hotel. Um, you, if we're going to meet, it's got to be at a restaurant. We've got to buy a meal, you know, and, and there, there's a lot more in Scripture that points that we should probably move the other direction toward um, you know, right. more spontaneous hospitality. And so I don't do that with every single culture of variable, but some of them clearly um, – there's a biblical preference or a, a biblical norm that, uh, and we can't just say, well, wherever you on the map is okay. That's really helpful because missionaries do have to walk that hard line, distinguishing what in culture is, uh, you know, I, I want to say neutral, nothing is neutral, right. In, in terms of God's standards, but you know, things like uh, how do you approach, you know, do you look people in the eye or do you look away from them? You know, in an Asian culture versus Western culture, you know, little, little cultural things and nuances like that. But you know, there, there's some of those that the missionary has to learn and adapt to, but then there's also going to be moments like a William Carey walking into India and, you know, finding widow burning to be a practice and which is, which is clearly wrong. There's, there's times where the missionary adapts and the, there's times where the missionary speaks prophetically into a culture and says, this is what the, the, the transcendent, uh, moral law, you know, distilled out of the principles of, of, of God's word has to say to this within the context of people repenting, believing the gospel and learning how to follow the Lordship of Christ. Yeah. Uh, you gave some pretty drastic examples that we might feel our old fashioned like, um, sati or, uh, or cannibalism. But just to, to give an example, we dealt with every day in, um, in Vanuatu, their, their cultural logic was one of retribution. Every, everything you did had to be repaid. Mm. Um, so in a neutral sense, um, 
if I gave you five sweet potatoes, you'd give me five sweet potatoes back. So if I um, took a daughter, uh, you know, if my family took a daughter out of your family for marriage uh, into my family, then I needed to send one of my daughters back to your family. But where it becomes um, a problem for the gospel is therefore absolutely no sin can be forgiven. Every single sin needs to either mm. result in an earthquake or a mudslide or someone gets sick. And so God, in fact, ends up beneath the law of retribution that he's, he's beholden to the law, just like the rest of the universe. Um, mm. So there'd be an example where uh, we would slowly try to nudge um, the Christians, uh, you know, away from the law of retribution toward an understanding of grace and forgiveness and that God's above the law of retribution. Yeah. So you're not making a case at all. And I think it's important for our listeners to understand that, especially I hope many of them go out and buy your book. I, I really feel like this book is something that almost every missionary, especially those in missionary leadership um, or leading teams need to engage with. But it, understanding that probably all of our listeners won't go out and buy the book. I think this is important to understand is that while you see value and importance of of different perspectives and culture. Not every cultural expression is a good cultural expression. And, uh, but nor is everything that's different than our own culture necessarily wrong. And I really appreciate how you, uh, dive into a lot of those things, show them not just as polar opposites, but, um, as, as, um, you know, as a continuum, um, I, I don't know if you use that word, but show, show the difference differences between them and then really try to drive us toward a kingdom view of those same uh, cultural value orientations. I, I really appreciated that about the book. So what is it about culture that you would say is temporal versus what is eternal? What is transcendent versus what is locked down in this present world order? Um, and, you know, how do we how do we think through those things as we look forward to the consummation of the kingdom? Scott mentioned the kingdom. Um, will we find culture in heaven what you know what is it that's being brought into the new jerusalem how can missionaries think through that of course in, in one sense we don't know exactly what it's going to look like but um i think that to root culture in the in the nature of god is to have a very different view of heaven uh if we see culture as purely temporal purely a human thing and god is super cultural then i think is where we end up with these sort of heresies of picturing humans as, uh, I mean, our souls as these floating around spirits doing nothing but, you know, um, but singing praise choruses. And, um, but if we understand that the reason that we have these amazing um, diverse cultural systems from language to, um, you know, just all the creativity of, of what we've done with the, with the earth ever since Adam and Eve, that something like that's going to continue. There, there's imagery in scripture of, of both a city and of a, a garden. Um, and that there's some aspect of work that's, that's eternal in God's uh, character. Um, he takes delight in the um, cultivating of the orchards and the building of the buildings and the laying of the streets. And um, so, and of course we see in revelation seven, obviously language um, to some, somehow language is part of our uh, cultural expression in heaven. I don't know, you know, whether that's the 7,000 living, living languages on earth today or, or, or what it will be, but. Yeah, and I, and I don't want to get into this because it's a whole nother topic, but I do encourage, uh, our listeners or to, in that there's a section in the book, um, 
I guess it's like I actually wrote it down in one of the reviews, page 70 and 71, where you kind of get into this idea of ethne and, and dealing with Revelation 7 and, and kind of take a different viewpoint um, than than a lot of uh, missiologists take. And I think it's, it's helpful to engage with. So I don't want to give away the baby with the bathwater. Oh, now I'm now I'm kind of on the edge of my seat, man. We'll have to go read the book. Uh, and I'll do I will say this. I appreciated this throughout is just the way that you have clear exegesis throughout. So even if you disagree, even if one would disagree with you, they can see where you're coming from and trace the biblical argument, not just kind of pulling it out of your cultural hat, so to speak. So anyway, I don't want to get down that road because that's another topic. And maybe you'll write a book on that someday and we'll interview <laughs> you on that topic because that'll be that would be a hot topic for sure. But um, I want to circle back here to this idea because I think missionaries, there's a practical side of this that I really want to make sure that we we address. So um, I grew up in a, uh, a Christian background where everything was really clear. Um, you know, black was really black and white was really white. And, you know, we, we knew exactly what hymnal to sing out of. We knew the hymnals that were not okay to sing out of. I mean, it was very, very clear what we should be, what we should be doing. Um, uh, and, and so when, when a missionary, uh, comes into a new, a new situation, you know, and maybe even addresses, Christians or in a totally non-Christian setting, how can a Christian learn to perceive the difference between his own particular cultural bias? Like this isn't Christian because this isn't Fanny Crosby. And this is what Fanny, this is what all Christians sing. They all sing Fanny Crosby hymns um, and, and coming to a biblical position. So how would you advise, I, I guess I'm taking a long time to get to this so, so at this point, <laughs> how, <laughs> was it? Yeah. how would uh, you advise a, uh, a Christian missionary to do their own heart exegesis to understand their own cultural biases um, as they engage with another culture? Yeah, I think that, um, first of all, uh, I did try to help um, Christian students of culture to, to deal with the relativism and pluralism issue by introducing two different terms and helping us separate them. So there's the philosophical relativism, which most of us Christians want to avoid. And so when we hear um, people saying, well, that's just their culture, they th do things differently, where we hear, because it sounds like relativism to us, and that sounds, um, you know, unacceptable to us as, as, um, as evangelicals, well, okay, let's separate relativism from pluralism and pluralism instead just recognizes a difference without immediately needing to say whether it's right or wrong. And so the, the pluralism, I would call it cultural pluralism rather than philosophical relativism, allows me to look at how a culture does something differently and to say, how does it make sense to them? So um, without um, at first needing to make a judgment on whether it's biblical or not, at least say, okay, I see they're marrying their first cousins. How does that make sense in their system? How does that work out economically? And how does changing that change their economics? How does that allow them or not, you know, how does it make sense for their ag agricultural patterns? Um, how does it make sense for uh, recognizing who a leader is? And so the more you recognize the, that anything you see in culture is connected to everything else they're doing, um, I give an example in the book of, of alcohol use is, you know, you, um, the, the way we use alcohol has a religious aspect because of how it shows up in uh, communion, for instance, but it has a social aspect. It has an economic aspect. It's huge. It's big business. Um, 
it has a, a cultural aspect in designating who's cool and who's not, or, you know, or, or who's in and who's out. And so it connects to all spheres of life. And so for the, the missionary to look at a, at a feature in a culture and rather than just immediately uh, determine, is it right or wrong to say, how is it connected to all other spheres of life and how does it make sense according to their logic? So that's a starting point. Um, but, uh, after that, then, yes, I, I think that um, working with Christians within that culture to uh, look to Scripture for principles, um, once we understand what's behind it, it one of the uh, great contributions of um, Christian intercultural studies over the years has been the notion of dynamic equivalence, which says that you have the outer uh, form and the underlying meaning. And it's not just related to scripture where, you know, you have the way you, you say the verse uh, in another language and then the underlying meaning, which is more eternal, but that everything we do in culture has an outer uh, form and an underlying meaning. So men having long hair, men having short hair, women wearing pants, women not wearing pants. Those, just, those are outer forms, but what is the underlying meaning for that culture at this particular point in time? And so you have to get to the underlying meaning in order to make any sort of judgment. It's not like you know, all, all long hair or all pants is all is for all times right or wrong. It, it matters what the underlying meaning is signaled by that culture at that time. Often, now it's not going to be true with every cultural feature, but uh, often that's what we encounter. And that takes work. I mean, that takes careful analysis and work to understand because we, we get into trouble when we just import the meaning of our culture and then get on an airplane or a boat and travel, you know, 13 hours away and just assume that everyone is looking at the same outward cultural expressions, meaning the same inward thing, right? Yeah. Uh, one example is, uh, there were these carvings that looked like gods, you know, looked like little uh, idols or, or totems um, throughout uh, the nation of Vanuatu. And uh, Christians would come in from, uh, you know, from the United States and they were convinced these must be little gods. There must be something spiritual about them. And so they were importing a, some experience maybe from Asia or, or from television or something that if you have a carving with like a, a scary, ugly face on it, that it must be an idol. Uh, but they were actually mm. importing that from the outside because really these were nothing other than dolls, you know, whereas oh. interestingly, when we had dolls sent from the uh, West to our island, those were frightening, awful things that, you know, <laughs> to the, to the oh, villagers wow. in our island. And they were like, oh, get that thing <laughs> away from me. They were, you know, they were too realistic. and. Uh. <laughs> That's fascinating. Yeah, I, I like the first principle that you gave, Ken, the uh, the principle of getting inside of a worldview and thinking through, you know, why are they doing X within the way that they think, um, you know, sort of offering that internal critique, because I think that can aid us in our evangelism, too. I see the Apostle Paul doing that. You know, he comes at them from the outside and he says, God commands you to repent and believe, but he also encourages them to look at their own uh, experiences and presuppositions, you know, in Acts uh, 14 and in 17, he says, Hey, the God that gives you air and water and food and blesses your crops and all these things, you know, he, he acknowledges realities that they would acknowledge as well. Um, and you know, you worship him under various forms, but guess what? This God doesn't want to be worshiped this way. This God has made a different way to be worshiped through his son. And so he, he does get inside of their mindset a little bit there too. Uh, it's important for missionaries to to get inside and and offer that internal critique and to think presuppositionally. Would you agree? Yeah, and it's always a partnership um, between the the missionary who acts as a bridge 
um, kind of infusing new ideas from the outside that people might have thought not thought through, um, and working with the Christian leadership there. And uh, so, yeah, uh, Paul Hebert's idea of con- of critical contextualization was always um, this partnership between the the missionary and the Christian leadership in Scripture. It's kind of a three. There's three voices speaking into this. Okay, so I'm just curious. This is off script, but um, I'm kind of geeking out. I really enjoy picking your <laughs> brain here. So um, I, there's a tension I'm feeling in my mind as I'm listening and as I read the book too. Um, this 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 tension of okay, every culture is every person needs to be culture making this is how god made us to be this part of how we show the image of god through culture making um and you go to a place like vanuatu or china or india or any other place and there's the the need for these new christians to to make their own culture and to glorify god and and show god through through a, a, a biblical Indian culture, a biblical Chinese culture, a biblical Vanuatu and Tana culture. So, but I'm curious, I just want your, your thoughts on this. And I realize they're going to be personal. Um, but what is that? Is there a tension between their need to create their own culture and the, the, um, the, the desire to connect them to the historical Christian culture? The fact that there is a Christian culture that, that has existed and is growing and, and sure it's influenced by Greek and Rome and Israel and, you know, Hebrews and then Europe and South. I mean, there's, there's obviously cultural influences from around the world in the larger Christian historic Christian culture. But what is that tension like between, in your opinion, uh, between helping create new Christian culture in a location and connecting to the broader Christian culture that already exists historically? Great question. Yeah. That's uh, we spend a lot of time thinking about that in our classes here at Biolin. That is why I called the book "God's Image and Global Cultures" because uh, I think we're recognizing more and more that there is, uh, you know, in the olden days, a missionary might have gone to an island like Tana and would have encountered a homogeneous, more or less stable culture, and so we would have asked the question of how do you make the gospel relevant to the people on Tana, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but nowadays, we're in a globalizing world where even the remotest people, and I'd say where we were was one of the remotest parts, they're on Facebook every day. Wow. And they're already connected to a global culture. There's, a, mm-hmm. there's a, a globalizing force of English, a globalizing force of Hollywood, and even evangelicalism um, down to the, the Matt Redman songs and the, and the Hillsong songs and the, um, the idea of a three-point sermon. I mean, all of this is globalizing. Yeah. Um, and so the one of the um changes in missiology over the last i would say very recent really maybe less than 10 years has been to understand that we're not reaching homogenous um people groups we're, we're reaching people part of a global audience where they have some distinct aspects of their of their ethno-linguistic heritage but um they want to to connect to a global uh evangelicalism um there'll be distinct parts of it um, but, uh, there's, there's also, there is this, uh, 2000 year body of history of, of, um, Christian theology that they're connecting to as they join the, the family of God, uh, and a, a global connection from the, the books that they're reading today to the, the programming that they're getting, uh, you know, the Christian programming that they're getting is, is all part of a global conversation. And so, yeah, it is very different than what, 
what we used to understand as co- contextualizing missions in a very specific context. I think that's a great note to tie things together on because contextualization is important and we all talk about it. Um, and, and yet at the same time, there's this other force, this globalizing force where, yeah, a Google or a Facebook isn't necessarily worried about contextualizing to, to each cultural context. They're, they have a mass appeal and that's a, it's a bad analogy, but at the same time the, you know, the kingdom of God doesn't just have manifestations in various cultures, but it is a culture. It's a counterculture that's, that's global and people do get to experience it in a shared way. And, you know, there's, you know, God is, is, is a God of diversity and a God of order and cohesion, you know, in the book of revelation, uh, we don't know how it works, but everybody is singing the same song, you know, worthy is the lamb. Uh, it's, it's not a, it's a, it's not a cacophony, but it is a, a symphony. Um, there, there's, there's one song being sung in unison together there. So, uh, that that's something pretty powerful to think about, especially how technology gives us tools to communicate a, a Christianity that m- maybe will never be completely separate from the, the the cultures of the missionaries that are taking the message out, but a Christianity that that really does transcend a, a culture in in a way never before really seen. So we're so appreciative that you're able to share some of those thoughts and give us some encouragements, Ken. And we're so thankful for you and for your book. How can people get a copy of your book and hear more from you as well? I suppose the easiest way to get the uh, book is through Amazon. Just um, Google God's image or, you know, go to Amazon and search for God's image in global cultures. Um, To get hold of me, they would, uh, easiest way is to go to my blog website, um, where I, uh, I, it's called, it's a gospel and culture blog, and it's just my last name, dot info, N-E-H-R-B-A-S-S dot I-N-F-O. All right. Well, Kenneth, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Missions Podcast. We appreciate you and your ministry. Thank you. It was great to talk with you about these issues. If you want to get more great content on theology, missions, and practice, go to missionspodcast.com. And while you're there, subscribe in iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite listening platform. And please give us an honest review and a five-star rating. And don't forget to be sending your questions to alex at missionspodcast.com. Until next time, thank you for joining us.